Amen. You may be seated. Welcome. It is great to see all of you here today on this beautiful May Day. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles, if you would, and find your way to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab one of the Bibles in front of you, and you can go to the, to the fourth of the four Gospels, the book of John, and we'll be in chapter 17. Now, we live in a world where people often compare themselves with others. And on top of that, we start comparing ourselves with other people's social media. Okay, you throw all that into a pot, and then you start adding some of our past transgressions and sins, and you have a recipe for people becoming discouraged, demoralized, and defeated. And that's why it's so important that we're reminded of who we are in Christ. In Christ, you are loved deeply. Don't forget that. In fact, if you go to Ephesians chapter 1, I'm not going to have you go there, but in Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul immediately starts to tell you who you are if you're in Christ. That you're blessed. You've been chosen. You're loved. You're predestined for adoption. You've been saved. You've been redeemed, forgiven. You've been lavished with His grace. You have an inheritance. You've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You have hope. And you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's an amazing thing to think about. And that's just in Ephesians chapter 1. I mean, just add into that Romans chapter 5, verse 1, which says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, you have peace with God. Romans 8, 1 says that there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. This is who you are in Christ. You live from victory and not for victory. This is who you are. You are loved. You're a child of God. And the fact is, in Christ, you don't need to feel discouraged or dejected or any of the other D's I talked about earlier. Jesus loves you. He is the great high priest who's now sitting at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you. He is praying for you. And this message today is titled, Jesus Prays for You. So I wrote this down as kind of the overriding idea of the message, and that's this. Jesus prays for those who are his. And if you're his, then he wants you to be secure, satisfied, and sanctified as you saturate the world. Jesus prays for those who are his, who are his, because he wants you to be secure and satisfied and sanctified as you saturate this world. Now, John 17, as we talked about last week, is the high priestly prayer. As Warren Wiersbe said, it's the holy of holies of all prayers. James Boyce said it's like Exodus chapter 3 when we're in front of the burning bush. And it's, it's we need to almost take our shoes off because we are walking on holy ground. And in this prayer, we get to be the proverbial fly on the wall as we listen to this intimate conversation between God the Son and God the Father. 
We mentioned last week that there's really three parts to this prayer. First, Jesus prays for himself. We saw that last week. Today, he prays for his disciples. And next week, Lord willing, we'll see how he prays for those who would receive him one day. Now, let's look at this text, starting in verse 6. I'm going to read this. And there's a lot here. In fact, I'm going to tell you a little bit. I, I struggled this week with this text. There, it's just like, what do you do with this? But then I just cut coming back to the fact that this is a picture of his love for us. Verse 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy, that they, have my, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. The words of the Son to the Father. So I want to ask and answer two questions today. Here's the first question. Why does Jesus pray for his followers? Why does Jesus pray for his followers? First of all, because they responded in faith to his words. In other words, they're his. They responded in faith to his words. In fact, Jesus starts this portion of the prayer by saying that he has manifested his name to his disciples. That he has revealed himself to his disciples. Look at verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name. That word manifested, it means to reveal. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. God is a revealing God. Now, it is all grace that God would reveal himself to us. He doesn't have to reveal himself to us. Now, we know that God reveals himself through creation. We see that in Romans chapter 1. In fact, let me put up Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. He says, Paul, the Apostle Paul says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. When he says to them, he's speaking to all those in the world. As we saw last week, all flesh, verse 2. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world 
in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. What's Paul saying there? He's saying, all you got to do, I mean, go up, just drive up to the Grand Canyon. God reveals himself in creation. That's called general revelation. But God also reveals himself through special revelation. And that's through his son and through his word. And he says, I have manifested my, your name to the people whom you gave me. I have revealed myself. Now, he uses the word world 18 different times in John 17. Okay, that's a lot. And what he's reminding us of is that there's, as we talked about last week, there are really two groups of people. Verse 2 talks about all flesh and those that he has given me who have come to know eternal life, a smaller group out of all flesh, out of all of the world. We were all part of the world at one time. But if we're in Christ, we've been separated out of the world. Jesus has revealed himself through his incarnation and through his word. And those that the Father gave him have responded in faith and obedience to his word. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Jesus, once again, is speaking about his disciples to his disciples. He's speaking to the Father, but he's speaking about his disciples. But they're listening in. And then verse 8 says, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Now what you see there is the process of salvation. Follow along. He says, for I have given them the words that you gave me. So there, there must be a giving of the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. So I have given them the words that you gave me. And then this, and they have received them. There's a receiving them, but not, not just receiving them, but receiving them as truth. That I came from you. That I am truly the Messiah, the Son of God, who came, who lived, and died, and was raised. So there's a giving, there's a receiving, and then there's a third part. There's a believing. And have come to know the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. It's a process of salvation. Now, we see that in Romans chapter 10. In fact, Paul says in, in Romans 10, 10, 13, he says, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We know there must be a turning from our sin and turning to him and calling upon the Lord. But notice what he says, Paul says in verses uh, 14 and 15. He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have not never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so there must be a, there must be a, a preaching of the word. There must be a receiving of the word and then there must be a believing of the word and so Paul just takes what we just read and he turns it upside down and so Jesus prays for his followers because they've responded in faith to his word and the fact is if you are in Christ and I pray that you are it is because you've heard the word you've received it and you have believed it 
And so he prays for you. He prays for those who respond in faith. But the second reason Jesus prays for his, his disciples, his followers, is this. Because they belong to him and bring him glory. They belong to him and bring glory to him. Look at verse 9. Jesus tells the Father again. He says, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus defines those he's praying for. He's not praying for the whole world. He's praying for those the Father has given him. Those that are his. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus is not praying for those who are in continual disobedience and rebellion to him. I can tell you we should pray for those. And if you have a child like that or a spouse like that or a parent like that, you probably are praying for them. He doesn't pray for those in continual disobedience and rebellion, but he prays for those who belong to him, for those who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They turn and turn to Jesus. And notice this says, I am praying for them. It's in the present tense. And what you learn about Jesus is he's always praying. He's always praying for those that are his. He prayed for the disciples before he chose them. In fact, in, uh, in, in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, it says that, that, that he went up on the mountain. He prayed all night before he chose his 12. He prayed for them during his ministry. He prays for them at the end of his ministry, which you see right here. And then he prays later when he ascends into heaven. In fact, look what Romans 8.34 says. In these days, he went out to the mountain. That's the wrong verse I put on there. Let me read it to you. That was, okay. Put that down, and let me just read this. Yeah. Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That's an amazing thing to think about. That God the Son is sitting at the right hand of the Father, praying for us, praying for you, interceding on your behalf. Jesus is a praying God. He is praying. Jesus prays for those who are his, and because we are his, we can rest in his love. Because nothing can separate us from the love of God. Look at verse 10. He says, all mine are yours, and yours are mine. Now, and he says, and I, have glor and I am glorified in them. You know the old saying, what yours is mine and what mine is, what's mine is mine? <laughs> Jesus is not like that. They're in perfect unity. Jesus and, and the Father, what yours is mine and what my is mine is yours. And I would tell you that's the way Pam and I live. What's mine is hers and what hers is mine. But notice what this, he says, and I am glorified in them. When you realize that we as fallen human beings who have been redeemed, we still have a sin nature. We still fall short and we still sin. But even though we sin, we bring glory to him. We are not perfect other than the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to our account. Jesus is glorified through his church. And I love that. We as his church, we glorify the Father and that's why he prays for us. 
because we belong to him and we bring him glory. So now let's look at what does he pray? We looked at why he prays, but what does he pray? He prays for us because we are his and we glorify him. But now what does he pray? First of all, he prays for you to be secure. Now again, I've kind of turned the, 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 uh, um, the pronouns here. He doesn't just pray for them, but he prays for those that are his. And so I'm going to use it talking about us. He prays for you to be secure. Look at verse 11. He says, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus says, I am coming to you. When he says that, what was he declaring? He was declaring that he was now going to the cross. That he was going to die a sacrificial death on the cross for those the Father had given him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. He's going to the cross to die on the cross. But then to be raised on the third day and ascend into heaven. He says, he says, I am coming to you. But the reality is, he was coming to him. He was leaving the world, but the disciples would remain. As we're going to talk about in a minute, they're going to remain for a purpose. He would leave the world. And now Jesus is praying to the Father to keep them. That word, to keep, you see, you see uh, in verse 11, you see the word keep them. In verse 12, I kept them. And then again, he says, I have guarded them. This is a picture of the security of the believer. He's saying, Father, protect them. It's a word that means to guard or to keep an eye on. Jesus is praying that our salvation would be secure. And when he says, keep them in your name, he's saying, keep them in the power of your name. Protect them in the power of your name. Listen to what Listen to what Proverbs 18.10 says. I'll put it on the screen. Psalm 18.10. Okay, Proverbs 18.10. I was messing up yesterday for sure. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. I told you, man, we're not perfect. We all blow it, even me, all the time. Maybe too much today. This is a picture of the perseverance of the saints. The fact is, we, are persev we persevere because we're saved. We don't persevere to be saved. We persevere as a result of the salvation that we have. Those who are saved persevere to the end. The fact is, there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation, so there's nothing we can do to lose our salvation. We, as believers, we will persevere to the end. That's the security of the believer. Now, that has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with the Father. Let me give you an example. I've got a really cute two-year-old granddaughter. I mean, she's really cute. Probably one of the cutest grand... Okay, 
the cutest granddaughter there is. But let's say that I'm walking with her along one of the Phoenix canals. And she's holding my hand. And I'm here, and the canal's over there, and she's right here. Not smart. But her security is not based on her ability to hold on to my hand. Her security is based on me holding on to her hand. Because I am not letting her in that canal. That's what the Father does to us. We are secure in him. And that's what Jesus is praying. Holy Father, keep them in your name. I kept them in your name. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. Now who's he talking about there? Judas. Some translations say the, the son of perdition, the one that was, that was destined for, for destruction. So the question is, did Judas lose his salvation? No. He never had it. He played the Christian game well. He was actually with Jesus and he heard his words. He saw his miracles. He fooled the other 11. He was like some that grow up in a Christian family, maybe go to a Christian school, go to a Christian youth group. Yet they never repented, never turned from their sins, and never believed in their heart that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. In fact, 1 John 2.19 tells us what happened to Judas. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. See, Judas went out from them because he was not of them. Had he been of them, he would not have gone out what from them. But he went out from them to manifest that he was not of him. And so Judas is not an example of someone who lost his salvation. He was an example of someone who did a pretty good job of acting like a Christian, but wasn't. And in the end, he was exposed as a fraud. And, and then John says, or Jesus says, this was all that the scripture would be fulfilled. Look at, look at uh, Psalm 41, verse 9. Okay, every time I call for a verse, I'm holding my breath. Did I get this one right? Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Scripture was fulfilled in Judas just a number of weeks ago in John chapter 13, it was Jesus who was sharing the bread with Judas. And he mentioned to John, the one that would betray him would be the one that he's giving the bread to. Listen, if you're in Christ, you are secure. So Jesus prays that you would be secure. Because Jesus prays for us to be secure, we are secure in him. There is nothing you can do to lose your salvation. Listen, we're going to sin. But when we do, we don't run from him. We run back to him. He says, come to me, all you who are, who are heavy laden and burdened, I will give you rest. We, we should be like the, the prodigal son who runs back to the father, knowing that he's there waiting for us. Well, the second thing he prays 
is he prays for you to be satisfied. He prays for you to sat be satisfied. Look at verse 13. He says, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So he's saying, listen, I am saying all these things for a purpose. That y'all, us, would have our joy fulfilled. We live in a world where people look for joy in all the wrong places. They look for satisfaction in all the wrong places. Sometimes we look for joy in people. But people can disappoint, can't they? Or we look for joy or satisfaction in our position or in power or in prominence. Or maybe in possessions. If I just get the new iPhone, I'm going to have joy until the next one comes out. Or it could be in play. All these are temporal. They're, they're, they, they can ultimately disappoint. But Jesus says, I'm going away. And I've said all that I've been saying so that our joy, that my joy would be them in them and my joy would be complete. In fact, he even says that in John 15, 11, where he says this. He says, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full, full to over, overflowing. See, it is through God's word that we actually can get true joy when the Holy Spirit is in us. And we're walking in the Spirit, not fulfilling the desires of the flesh. There is joy. The fact is, even though Jesus was leaving them, they could still have a full measure of joy. And I was thinking about this. See, there's joy in the fact that we know the whole plan of salvation. And that we know the end. And we know that in Christ we can spend eternity in heaven. Worshiping with other believers. With our resurrected bodies. No more pain. No more tears. There is joy in that. There is joy in knowing these words. And the fact is, knowing the truth about eternity should give us great joy. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, but I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy, and my joy, and that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. And look at verse 14. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He says, I have given them your word. So what is God's word? In fact, Todd asked me, what is God's word? Great, great question. They, I'm glad you asked that. In fact, for the benefit of everybody else, let me answer it. The fact is, God's word is right here. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We know 1 John 1.14 that... that uh, uh, Jesus, the word, became flesh, and he dwelt among us. He gave his word to us. 66 books written by 40 different authors on three different continents over 1,500 years, all superintended by the Holy Spirit. And when you read the whole book of Scripture, you see just the line of Jesus Christ. They call it the scarlet thread working through all of the books to the to the bringing us to the New Testament. In fact, the Old Testament is, is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. This, this book 
this scripture, what God has given us, it's completely authoritative. It's inerrant and it's sufficient for all of life. And it gives us joy and strength. In fact, Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. I get strength through God's joy, and that's where I get joy. See, the Lord, the joy of the Lord is not found in the world, but it is found in God's word. Listen, listen to what Jeremiah says. This is a great verse. Jeremiah 15, 16 says this. Your words were found, and I ate them. Your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord. God of hosts. You want satisfaction? You know, you can sit there and I'm going to probably step on some toes. I'm stepping on my own right now. There's sometimes Pam wants to watch football all day and I say, okay, we'll do that. <laughs> Maybe not. Might be the other way around. And it's like after watching, it's like, okay, great. But you spend some time in the Word just meditating, marinating in God's Word. I'm telling you, there's just this joy and there's satisfaction. Having spending time with the Lord, it's a relationship. Jesus prays for you to be satisfied in him. Third, he prays for you to be sanctified. He prays for you to be sanctified. Look at verse 15. He says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth, in the truth. Your word is truth. So that word sanctify, what is it? What does it mean? Well, Wayne Grudem in Systematic Theology wrote this. He says, sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and more like Christ in our actual lives. So it's not just letting go and letting God change us. But it's the power of the Spirit in us, making us more like Christ, but it's me being obedient to the Word of God and becoming more like Christ. Now, the word sanctification, it, it has the root word hagiazo. hagiazo. It's, a, it's, a, it's a Greek word which means to set apart. And it's, it's the whole idea of being set apart. Set apart from the world and set apart to God. And he sets us apart for a purpose. And that's to declare the glory of him, to manifest his name to others. Now, there are three aspects of sanctification. We were sanctified. We're being sanctified. We will be sanctified. Okay, let me just back up on that. At the moment of redemption, at the moment we received Jesus as Lord and Savior, we were sanctified. We've been washed. We've been cleansed. That is our position we're now positionally clean. We're now positionally set apart from, from the world to God. But we are being sanctified also. Which means we're going through a process. We're not perfect. We still have a sin nature. The, the point is there's a, there's a progression from being less and less like my old self and more and more like Jesus Christ. It's a process. It's a movement. And my prayer is for all of us that, that we would continually become more and more like Christ as we allow the word to work in us so the word can work through us. 
The reality is, we sin. In fact, 1 John 1.8 says this. Let me put it up. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, speaking of believers, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The fact is, we will sin, but verse 9 is, is, is one of those verses that, I love this verse, because there's so much hope in it. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so, it's really important on this sanctification process to keep short accounts. If I sin against my wife, and I will, I need to confess it, ask her to forgive me. I confess it to God first. He, he, always, he always forgives me. And prayerfully, my wife will too, because that's what God calls, and she does. In fact, Colossians 3.13 says, as Christ has forgiven you, so also you must do. So there's this process of sanctification, of becoming more and more like Christ. But then the third step is, or this third aspect of sanctification, we, we've been sanctified, we're being sanctified, we will be sanctified. When God calls us home, we're perfect. We've been completely set apart from the world. We've been set apart to God, and we now are completely sinless in heaven, which is a wonderful thing to think about. So he prays for you to be sanctified. He prays for you not to be, to, we're, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. He prays for, for God not to take him out of the world. And I think so many of us were like, man, Lord, just take me out of this, this sinful world. All you got to do is turn on the news. I don't recommend that. And, and like, okay, Lord, call me up. I'm ready to come home. But he wants us to be here to make a difference. And I think that's so important that we do make a difference. Being a Christ follower in the world, we need to be careful because now there's a target on our back. We've been set apart. Satan would love to take us down. He says in verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. And the fact is, Satan's not going to come to us with this red Halloween suit with a spear and poke that spear in you. He's too smart for that. You know how he's going to come after you? Through busyness. We become so busy that you can't spend time with the Lord. Or through distractions. You know what I've learned? All distractions are equal. Because if they distract you from your relationship with the Lord, they've distracted you from the most important thing, from your first love. What is Revelation chapter 2? This I have against you, that you've lost your first love. I mean, they were doing all these great things. I mean, I mean you see that in, in, in Judges chapter 2. Where it says, there arose another generation who did not know the Lord of the things that he had done. And yet all these men were doing all these great things for the, for the kingdom. They were, they, were, they, were, they, were, they were settling the lands. And yet they didn't pour into their children. They weren't doing what was important. Satan will 
He will, he will just try to destroy us through our marriages. He will draw our kids away from what's true. Or he'll just make us apathetic about the cultural changes that are going on. And not take a stand for the truth. And the fact is we must recognize that we are susceptible to the evil one. And if you're sitting there thinking you're not, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 12 says, You who think you stand, take heed lest you what? Fall. In fact, 1 Peter 5, we're told to, he says, God resists the proud, he rewards the humble, humble yourself before him, and he will exalt you due time. And then he tells you in verse 8 why. Look at verse 8. Of, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Knowing the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Listen, we need to stand firm in our faith. We are sanctified. We've been set apart. And he says, he says to the Father, he says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. This is a key verse. We are sanctified by God's word. Because if all we're doing is filling our lives up with the world... We will not be set apart. But it's to be sanctified. It's to be set apart by his word. And he says, your word is truth. And this is not relative truth. This is truth. Absolute truth. Uncompromised truth. We are, we are to live by the authority of God's word. We are to live under the authority of God's word, not over the authority of God's word. We're not called to be cafeteria Christians. It's like... You're walking through the cafeteria line. Guess what they always have first? The desserts. They certainly don't have the green jello first. But the fact is, it's like, I'll have some of this, I'll have some of that. I do not want any of that. Because that just does not look good. And that, sometimes we approach the Bible that way. This is God's truth. We as a church are committed to truth. We're Committed to the truth of the Bible. That's why we're called Hope Bible Church. We thought about Hope Church Phoenix. But it's like, no, we want to distinguish ourselves. We want to be set apart as those who believe and love God's word. We teach the Bible in every area of ministry of this church. Our children right now are learning the word of God. Our students on Sunday nights learn the word of God. Our small groups, we learn the word of God. Our men's ministry, our women's ministry, it's the word of God. Guess what you, what's going to happen when you come to church on Sunday? You're going to open the word of God. Why? Because this is truth. And the truth is what sanctifies us. It sets us apart from the world. Because if we're not being set apart by the word of God, we're going to be set apart to the world. And that's a bad place to be. And that's what's happening in many areas around the world. But we as a church, we as believers in Jesus Christ must stand firm. Truth is truth. It's not relative. Two plus two will always be four. I don't care if you say it, two plus two equals five. Just because you believe that doesn't mean it's true. It just means you're wrong. And that's what happens with relative truth. Because there is a truth. Like, where do people get that stinking thinking? It stinks. And the reality is, it's a reminder that the world is not our home, that we're just sojourners passing through. Heaven is our home. Thank you, Jesus. 
But while we're here, we are called to be ambassadors for Christ. We've been sanctified for a purpose. We are to be ambassadors for Christ. We represent Christ. We represent his word. If all Christians lived as Christians are called to live, if all Christians loved as Christians are called to love, this world would be a different place. And the fact is, who should it start with? It starts with me. It starts in my home. It starts with my children. And it's not putting our families in a bubble, but it's teaching them the truth. It's helping them to know what's going on out there. The fact is, we've been set apart, and we're called to gather so we can grow and then go and make a difference. And that leads us to the final reason Jesus prays for us. And he prays for you to saturate the world. He prays for you to saturate the world. In fact, both verses 11 and 15, Jesus talks about that he's not taking the disciples out of the world, but he's keeping them in the world. And we are to be in the world to carry out God's plan of spreading the gospel uh, throughout a, a lost and dying world. And that's why we are a church that believes in planting churches. We're part of the Great Commission Collective. It's, a, it's, a, it's an organization that's committed to, to planting and strengthening and multiplying Great Commission churches. We have a heart for other churches. Listen, there's a lot of very good um, parachurch uh, ministries out there. But what you see in the Bible is God's plan for getting the gospel out there is the church, and there is no plan B. And so that's why he's, he's praying for the disciples. He, because those 11 are going to go out, and they're going to plant churches, which you see in the book of Acts, and those churches plant churches. And, and then they, the, the people will come, and they will gather. They will hear the word of God. They will grow, and then they go. And that's who we are. That's what we're called to be. That's why every Thursday morning I'm on the phone call with, with uh, Pastor Yanika in, in uh, Cluj, Romania. We have a heart for planting churches and for strengthening churches. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Our Father, our God, is ascending God. Jesus was sent into the world to carry out the work of the Father. John, John 4, 34, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him and to complete his work. And now Jesus is sending us into the world to do the work he has called us to do. Matthew 5 talks about us, we're, we're called to be salt and light in a very saltless and dark world. Acts 1.8, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the outer ends of the world. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus says, all, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you, and lo, I will be with you even to the end of the age. Jesus, at the end of John, he says, he says as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Listen. We are called to be, to be sanctified and secure and satisfied so we can saturate the world with the truth. Jesus sets us apart to be his ambassadors, to be his witnesses. 
So for those who are hungry, we can point them to the bread of life. To those that are in darkness, we can point them to the light of the world. To those that are thirsty, we can point them to the living waters. To those that, are, that, are, that, are, that need to get in, we can point them to the door. To those that are lost, we can point them to the good shepherd. To those who don't know the way, we point them to the way, the truth, and the life. And to those who are fruitless, we point them to the vine, the one true vine. If you're in Christ, you never need to feel discouraged or demoralized or defeated. Because you're a child of the king. And he's praying for you. Jesus loves you. As the worship team comes up, I just want to remind you that, listen, you've been saved per, for a purpose. And now, as a result of that, Jesus is praying for you. He's praying that you will be secure and that you will be satisfied and that you will be sanctified as you saturate the world. That's a high calling, but that's awesome. There's some of you here today that may not know this God who prays. There may never have been a time where you've turned from your sins. That's called repentance. And turn to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I would just say even now, come to the God who loves you. The Bible says if, if you hear his voice today, if you hear his voice and harden your hearts, he says don't harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. Jesus is an inviting God. He says, come to me. He says, follow me. And as when you come to him and you follow him, you can have absolute assurance of eternal life. And you can know that there will be nothing that can separate you from the love, from the love of God. And when you do, he will satisfy you. He will sanctify you. He will secure you. And he will use you to saturate a world that desperately needs to be saturated with the word of God. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love. Father, help us to rest in your love. Father, help us to, to live in a way that brings glory to your name. And, and Lord, I pray for those maybe who have been unchurched or de-churched or hurt by the church. Lord, they would just look to you. And they would find joy in you, and find joy in your word, and find joy in the community that you've called them to. Father, if there's anyone here today that needs to be saved, I pray you would work in their heart and they would surrender to you now. In Jesus' name I pray.